How are you, Marco? Pretty good. Yeah, how are you? I, I have a bit of a cold. I don't want to complain, though. Yeah, I've, I've been half sick for about three weeks. Um, it's one of those annoying things that everybody has where, like, there's no, like, one day where it's really bad. You just feel kind of shitty for, like, three weeks. I hear you. I'm gonna take and a the whole family's gotten it. So hopefully I won't be too sniffly or gross on the show. I'm gonna take a little. I'm gonna take a little cold medicine. <laughs> it's, it doesn't it doesn't sound like the cold medicine that I usually have. I take it in a can. Oh man! All right, I've never done this before. We're attempting a sort of a double double length episode that we're actually going to split into two episodes. I have some things I really do want to talk to you about um, this week, but I also thought. Uh, you know, with all the big deal that got made out of the Max 30th anniversary that that I, you know, whoever I have on, we could talk about that. But maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you're the best person to talk about that with because you're a relatively, you know, you weren't a longtime Mac user. <laughs> right, I don't, uh, I don't, I'm only 31. If Syracuse and I started talking about that, though, I worry that it would be like six episodes. Well, then there you go. <laughs> I, and be- it's going to take him two weeks to prepare for that. Right, like we could do like a ninety-minute episode just on ResEdit. You don't even remember ResEdit. There was somebody did eventually make a Windows program with that same name that I think did the same thing, but I, I know of it. Hmm. I use the Windows version, but who cares? But yeah, I, I do Res know Edit of the was Mac like version. The, like your 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 like uh, gateway drug. It was like your gateway drug to hacking your system, you know, and and. Uh, it was the equivalent at the time of like open, showing the package contents of an app and going in and, you know, like, so for example, if you wanted to change the toolbar icons in any app, you could show package contents on the adopt app bundle, find the resources in there, and they're just image files, replace them with the image files of your choice. And then the next time you launch the app, if you did it right, you'll have your own custom toolbar icons or something like that. Um, in in the classic Mac, you didn't have a bundle like in the file system. Resources where it was the whole thing where there were two forks to a file, and the resource fork was where a well written app would have all of its its like icons and stuff like that. See, that was back in the days when Apple could actually do creative things with how the file system worked, uh, where they didn't have to worry that much about Windows compatibility because it wasn't compatible anyway, and there wasn't a lot of network transfer going on and right there was now none. now they can't do anything like that now they right. can't you know they they have to keep their file system as simple and stupid as the least common denominator that they're going to find out there in the world which includes server file systems network file systems windows compact flashcards, all that stuff and so they have like they can't do that kind of experimentation where like they have i mean they have they have like their standard attributes now but those are and you can see how badly those are supported <laughs> as a real life example of why they can't do much else with that And I remember it was when did when did you get your first Mac? I came in in two thousand four wow. because I I had just graduated from college. I had gotten my first job, so I had a little bit of money, and I needed a new computer because my my PCs were aging quickly. And uh, I I had never owned a laptop before that, except for like one awful one I bought off eBay for like a hundred bucks that lasted you know a summer, <laughs> and that was it. But I never really owned a, a real laptop. And I had always, I, I remember there was there was a store that still exists, I think, called Micro Center, which was a chain of computer sales stores and stuff like that. I remember and, Micro uh, Center. 
Yeah, so in Columbus, that was, like, the best place to go. So my friends and I would go there, like, every weekend just to, like, look around and maybe, like, buy some CDRs or something, maybe occasionally some kind of cheap peripheral, but nothing really major. And we'd always stop in the little Mac room because uh, the Macs had, a, they had like, its own enclosed glass area, a lot like when you go into going to Best Buy now, there's like, there's like the Bose room, <laughs> you know, it's a lot like that, but for them, for like, you know, they got to keep the Macs uh, isolated over here so they don't get the rest of the computers sick, and so we'd go in there, and we'd play this game, like, all right, try to figure something out on the Mac, so we'd, we'd all sit down at one, like, around this table, all right, who can figure out how to open the CD-ROM drive, <laughs> and, and like, to, and we'd be sitting there, like, staring at the computer, pushing various buttons, no one figures out how to open the CD-ROM drive, and, like, the guy comes over, obviously, like, you know, we're just some jerky teenagers in there. This guy comes over and, like, with this big sigh, like, hits the button on the keyboard. And we're like, oh. <laughs> anyway, so I always knew Max from from that, really. You know, I, I rarely knew anybody growing up who had one. Uh, and the ones that, that they were growing up were terrible because they were all, like, you know, the mid-'90s Max that nobody liked. I wouldn't say that. I, I still liked them. It's it's really that I, I I think it gets overstated in hindsight how bad the '90s Macs were. Uh, I think the problem is that there were definitely some performance to price issues where where and it's where this whole uh, it's it's stuck with Apple ever since that Apple is you know that the computers are overpriced you're paying for the brand et cetera et cetera and if you just ran benchmarks it was you know like a, a two grand Mac was almost certainly going to be slower than a two grand PC and probably slower than like a fifteen hundred dollar PC I might be getting the prices wrong because God computers used to be so expensive oh yeah I mean my first computer in 1994 uh, was twenty five hundred dollars. And yeah. it was a pretty pretty mid range. It wasn't like a super high end. It was a pretty mid range PC. It, I think more or less what happened to Apple in the nineties was that that the Mac lost. It needed to be a lot better than than the the commodity Wintel uh, machines of the day, and it no longer was. It was better. It was certainly still more elegant in terms of the way the OS was designed conceptually, not at the low level. You know the way that like a, a web page could lock up your whole system. Uh, I mean that was terrible. I mean that's really where that that's one of the that's the other problem they probably had. Like their hardware got slow, and the OS was like at a a geeky level outdated. And it mattered to users, even you know that that the geeky stuff was so outdated because it affected the real world performance. You know, it's like you don't have to understand cars at all to understand that when you hit gas, it should go faster. And if you hit gas and your car just turned off, which is sort of like what the Mac had, it... it <laughs> uh, well, you know, I don't necessarily think that's exclusive to the Mac, though. I mean, the, the mid and late 90s were actually a pretty terrible time for PCs as well. I mean, that that was a time when... You know, RAM was still very scarce and expensive. Hard drives, of course, were very, very slow. Um, and at the same time, this was when browsing the web was really becoming a big thing. And so you had this this pretty resource-intensive common task, really for the first time in a while. You know, games would always push the envelope, but, you know, games would run okay uh, on pretty much anything, depending on your settings. But your web browser, like browsing the web, you can't like turn that down <laughs> and make it less intensive. Right. And and that was, you know, the web browsers were moving very quickly. 
you were getting things like inline images, JavaScript tables, frames, all this, you know, all this like new stuff that was making rendering the page much more complicated and take much more memory. And so when memory was still very scarce, then you have the operating systems being, you know, really pushed. You know, this is like in the PC era. This was Windows 98, Windows 95. These were not good operating systems by any means and uh, and certainly not very advanced. So, like, they were still very rudimentary with how they managed their memory, what they could tolerate, how they used hardware. There was not a lot of video acceleration, so lots more things were falling on these very slow CPUs. And so there was all this all this drain being put on the systems. Multitasking was getting more and more common as more people were getting more comfortable with computers, so they were able to, able to multitask more, and so they were you know, pushing the RAM even further. I mean, pretty much anything you would do on a PC in the 90s, the, the hard drive would be grinding away, trying to page everything back into RAM from whatever you had done recently, because there was just never enough RAM. And so the, 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 just the hard drive lights were always blinking on 90s PCs. Like, the, the sound of computing in the 90s was that like grinding hard drive access sound. That was it. That and a modem. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, and the busiest signal that you get because that was the first time where you'd have unlimited dial-up for, you know, for for uh, instead of having to pay like $3 an hour or something. So it was it was a pretty bad time for all computers really. I mean, it was exciting that we that we were making progress on the internet and and stuff to do with the computers, but it took the hardware a long time to get a lot of headroom. And that, and like in, in the early 2000s, we got that. RAM got really cheap. CPUs got this big boom when AMD started really competing with Intel in a meaningful way. Uh, it was really great for a while there. I it, The other thing that struck me with all the 30-year original Mac nostalgia is, is and it, it's a cliche and to some degree to just, you know, obsess over how, just how, you know, the, the whole thing like, uh, you know, that everybody's cell phone has more computing power than the entire uh, Apollo project at NASA in the 60s. You know, a single iPhone is, has more computing power than every computer NASA had. Something like that. I don't know. Um, but it, it really is true when you think back to the, you know, especially the 80s, but even the 90s, just how ridiculously resource-constrained the machines were compared to today. So Chris Espinoza, who's like Apple employee number eight, I think, something like that. He has a ridiculously low employee number and has been employed at Apple continuously ever since. Is he um, the only one? Who's been employed continuously? Yeah, since all the way back then. He probably is, right? Uh, I, Waz officially, I believe, has always been an Apple employee. Well, that's kind of shaky. But Waz has, you know, he's like, you know, his job title is Waz. And it's, you know, I don't know <laughs> that he's ever, I don't even know if he can get into an Apple building. Uh, yeah, I think Espinosa is the only person who's uh, actually like worked nonstop on real projects, you know, ever since. And it's almost ridiculous that anybody, including him, has. I mean, it's preposterous. He was like he was like sixteen years old or something like that when he started. He got like <laughs> so like if he if he does stay until like a even like a reasonable retirement age of you know. 60s or something like that he'll 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 have been there like an impossible to break record time because he started when he was 16 yeah that's that's pretty crazy uh although i mean at this point like why leave you know if he's if he's made it this far well i think that's why though i think because he loves it you know i think that he really you know he just lives and breathes you know i don't know him that well i've met him a few times at like wwdc you know but 
you know, it's the impression you get from him and from the stories that have been published from the old days is, you know, he, he's your prototypical Apple engineer, you know, sort of person who loves obsessing over making something really nice and, you know, going the extra mile to do it. Uh, anyway, he tweeted, though, uh, something to the effect of, you know, the original Mac, the 1984 Mac that we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of, had 128 kilobytes of RAM. And so that's not even enough. Or I think he said, like, it would be enough to fit two, like, finder icons from the <laughs> Mac OS 10.9. <laughs> right. And and uh, Ged from Icon Factory was like, I don't think it would fit any, because they're bigger than that now. Like, you couldn't even fit a single icon into RAM on an original Mac. The entire operating system, everything, <laughs> was everything. Using an app, you know, launching an app and using the app and having documents open and all the contents from the documents that are in RAM, all of that was less memory than the Finder uses just to throw an icon on screen. Oh, yeah. I mean, like like when we... So when I encode my podcast, I have I have this giant set of shell scripts that I use to automate as much as possible. And the, the final file is encoded on the command line with, with the lame encoder. And there's a limit of 128 kilobytes for how big the artwork file can be. And that's surprisingly hard to hit. Like, I had to, like, really crank the quality down <laughs> and, to, hit, and to, to just barely fit this one image that isn't even that complex of an image. To just barely fit this one image into the amount of entire RAM the first Mac had. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, really. And then even, you know, the next... And, and Moore's law applied in all sorts of ways, uh, you know, from like, I don't know, probably like the next, maybe not quite two decades, but at least the next 15 years, like from 1984 through around 2000, where processor speeds doubled every 18 months, you know, hard drives doubled, or it wasn't even hard drives originally, it was floppies, but, you know, your storage space doubled pretty quickly, your RAM, like what's a, what's a typical machine configured with for RAM doubled every couple of years. Um, but even at that pace, like the first Mac I owned was in 1991 when I went to college and it was a Mac LC with four megs of Ram and a 40 meg hard drive. I almost said gig. Uh, I, I swear in hindsight, like half of my time using that machine was spent trying to, uh, uh, manage that 40 megabytes of hard drive space. Like, <laughs> figuring out what I could delete, what I would move to floppies and how I'd label the floppies so I could, you know, refer back to the whatever it was again. It was I was like all I ever did. We used to have a thing and uh did they have anything like this for PCs that was we had a thing called uh disk doubler. Yeah, where that just like basically does zip zip compression on the disk. Yeah, at, yeah, and, there were all sorts of things like that, and they were always like you'd always hear stories of people losing everything because oh, something messed up and you couldn't read it. I I of course inst- bought it and installed it. I think I bought it. Maybe I pirated it. I don't know, but uh, pretty sure I bought it because it seemed like it was so important that I really I wanted to be sure I was getting a legit copy. Uh, and of course I ran it and it was true. It it did, maybe it wasn't quite double, but it was very, very close to the effective volume of 80 megabytes. And it just felt so spacious. And I never, I never had like a catastrophic problem with it, but in, I knew that there were other people who did. And in hindsight, I want to go back and just strangle myself, you know, my 19 or 20 year old self who did it because it seems like the dumbest possible thing you could ever install. And that was also like, 
most people, I mean, you think today nobody has backups. It was way worse back right. then. You couldn't. You, you, right. I mean, another 40 meg hard drive to serve as like a clone of some sort <laughs> of my drive would have, it was like, it wasn't even possible. Was it? I used to, it used to, right, like now you can buy a four terabyte external drive today for 150 bucks. There was, there weren't external drives. There wasn't four terabytes. It certainly wouldn't have been 150 bucks. Like, it wasn't even... Your only option was to copy things onto floppies. That was it. That was right. the only realistic option that any consumer... I mean, you know, businesses and servers would probably have tape drives at that point, but but consumers would... You know, your only option was floppies. As a college student in the first half of the 90s, I actually sweated the price of floppy disks. Yeah. Right? And I knew enough... I was I was smart enough to know that uh, it didn't matter too much what you know like paying for name brand floppies you know floppies in general sucked period I mean if you you know you you were asking for trouble if your only copy of data was on a floppy uh, so you could you could get more for your money by just buying no name brand floppies and I don't think it was you know I don't think you were really any worse for it but it, just buying like ten packs of them at, on a typical you know like a typical college student i was i spent most of college like knowing which atm machines i could use to take ten dollars out instead of 20 because i only had 17 dollars in my checking account uh and spend it all on floppies exactly and go out and buy like both ways but i and and then like when when companies started giving out floppies for like promotions i mean you know like people mock and still mock to this day aol for handing out floppy disks like like cotton candy it was great because then you could take them and format them and and use them for yourself and i needed them well sometimes you'd have to actually like punch the hole out in the corner to to mark it as writable right right i remember that or no you'd have to tape over because i think when the hole was present it was right it was read only so you'd have to tape over the hole with something opaque like masking tape which of course great idea putting that into a a disk drive (laughs) Uh, but yes of course we all did that The Mac used to be, this is so ridiculous, the Mac, I I think it was even so in System 7 when I had my LC at first, um, like formatting a floppy disk. And I think even finder copies was system modal. So (laughs) like when you were copying something to a floppy, it was, it, 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 you had to wait, everything had to wait. Even if you had a couple apps open, you had to wait even just to switch to another app until the copy was over. Yeah, I mean, my my first few years of computing were on Windows three point one, and and uh, I don't think it was, I th- it wasn't quite that bad. I think you could technically switch apps, but everything else would be so slow you would you wouldn't really want to. Um, yeah, I mean, it was computing was so incredibly like prehistoric. It was so rudimentary back then, and really, uh, man, we've come a long way. I mean, you know, I used to always wonder. You know, like I would think like 10 years ago, like what back when I was in, in the 90s before I had internet access at all, I had a computer for like three years before ever having internet access. What the heck did I do all day on that? I, I remember spending hours on it. <laughs> Same here. But, but it, like once you have the internet and then like, you know, if the internet goes out at your house and, you know, especially before smartphones where you didn't just have an easy backup, if the internet goes out, you have this computer and like, well, this is useless. Like, what am I going to do with this thing? And looking back, I would I would think, like, what the heck did I do all day? But, you know, when you think a little more critically, you're like, actually, I wasn't doing that much. Everything just took forever. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. Everything took forever. God almighty. 
I feel like if you if you time traveled back to then, it would be infuriating. You wouldn't like like having a. It would take. It might take months and maybe never to get acclimated to how <laughs> slow everything was. And everything with these tiny, like I had a 14-inch CRT as my first monitor. And that was, and that was really nice at the time. I mean, just man, we've come so long. And now I'm bitching about my 30-inch monitor not being high resolution enough. Right. Well, and the original Mac had a nine-inch diagonal, and it was, and by some measures, really, really nice for the time because it because it was black and white. It, and it used square pixels instead of rectangular pixels, which is actually what a lot of the CRTs in the 80s used. Um, it was like lines were thinner and pixels were smaller and then everything was crisper than on the displays we were used to before it. But nine inches diagonal is tiny. I mean, you're talking uh, uh, smaller, smaller than an iPad. Smaller than an iPad. It's something that you sit at, you know, ostensibly at arm's arm's length. It was crazy. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of people look back, and, and we, you know, we've seen a lot of this with the Mac anniversary, but but not as much as I, as I would have expected. A lot of people look back on previous eras of of technology or living, and they're oh wow, everything was so great and reliable and simple back then. And I've never had that kind of nostalgia. I don't care at all about old computers, old technology. I I look back on it with like slight contempt. Like <laughs> I can't believe these things sucked in ways X, Y, and Z. Like I I the, the like when a couple of years ago um all these all these sites like Mux Tape started it and then a bunch of other sites came up to like to like use the cassette tape, the audio cassette tape as some kind of like hip metaphor for music activity of some sort or sharing and I hated cassette tapes. They were terrible. Like there, it was a terrible, terrible medium in every possible way. I don't want to relive those days ever. Floppy disks, same thing. Floppy disks were awful, right? In every possible way. Even at the time, everyone knew they were awful. Now everyone knows they're awful. In ten more years, are our kids gonna like fetishize floppy disks and be like, "Oh, this is so cool. It's so analog." Kind of like, is that gonna be a thing? Somebody uh, tweeted today, and, and it got. I saw it retweeted because I was like at. Grubert in it so it showed up like six times in my replies but it was a comic somebody drew where a, an adult was showing a child a floppy disk and the child says uh, cool you made a 3D model of the save icon <laughs> I thought that was nice. pretty good uh, I guess the other thing though that really stands out and I, I and I think it's why this 30th anniversary of the Mac thing has, has resonated uh, you know so strongly is that the technology was so bad everything was slow and everything was so constrained that like you said in some ways it's not a lot of nostalgia where where like you might want to if you're into wristwatches buying like vintage ones from the 60s like 50 year old watches they're still great timepieces right they're still today just great and like an old car maybe a little bit less so in terms of um a lot of the details, but there's a reason people still collect old cars and like see even around. that. Like my my father-in-law had a '77 uh, Corvette, and and he they they retired, they moved upstate, and we had it in our garage for a few months trying to sell it. And I had to move it a few times, and he came down a few times, and we had to drive it to various places. And there's this appeal for a lot of people of classic cars, and and I was in it like, oh my god, this thing is a death trap, and it has no features, the heat sucks. It doesn't run that reliably. Like, oh my God, what? Like, 
why would anybody want this? Like, even that, I have I have no nostalgia for that. Hmm. Maybe you have a good point there. Maybe maybe old cars are more like old computers, where you think that there's a nostalgia, but then when you actually get into it, it's it's actually like unpleasant. I had a friend who was into old cars, and he had like an old Ford Falcon. And when we drive around in it, it's first you think it's pretty cool, but then you get out and like uh, you realize you smell like gasoline, <laughs> right? And it's like, oh man, am I did I just give myself cancer? What's yeah. going on here? And you're sitting there in like this aluminum can. It's like everything's so thin and small compared to modern giant boat cars. It's yeah, it's uh, it it's not as good as you remember. Like I, I bought <laughs> when, I, when I was when I was growing up, I uh, I was always a Sega guy. And then when the Saturn came out, I couldn't afford it. It was four hundred dollars. That was a ton for a console in like ninety five or whenever it came out. And so I never got a Saturn. And then later, like at the end of college, years later, when they were really dirt cheap on eBay, I'm like, you know what? I'm finally going to get my Saturn. This is going to be great. And I, I buy a Saturn with a few games, and it's just terrible. Like, it was such a major disappointment. And uh, part of that beca- is because the Saturn sucked. Um, you're going to get tons of email for that. I'm so glad n- none of these listeners know who I am. Part of that's the Saturn sucked. The other part of it was like, you know, it was looking back on this old era of technology where... I was hoping it would be amazing in modern times, and by modern context, it wasn't even close. Hmm. I used to be a Sega guy. I wonder if how much of that. Uh, it's it's obvious. It's a whole new topic, but the the whole Nintendo should make iOS games, or, or at least somehow get involved with these devices. Argument. Oh, Syracuse then, is going to be so right, and then the Nintendo the show. right, and then the Nintendo <laughs> guys, you know, tell you how you're wrong, and that you stick to the stuff you understand, dummy. Uh, but I wonder, I wonder, I never really thought about it, about the fact that in the, in that like NES era, I, and the, um, I guess what was the one that was more the rival to the Genesis? It wasn't the NES, was it? Wasn't it? Well, past? there was kind of overlap. The, they weren't timed The NES, well. yeah, the, the Genesis came out a few, I think a couple years before the Super Nintendo. So there, there was a period of time where the Genesis right. was only competing with the NES. And then the Nintendo. Super Nintendo came out yeah. and did a few things better than it. So it was, it was kind right. of weirdly overlapped. I was a Genesis guy. I like Genesis. Yeah, me too. But that, that was like, that was my first experience of like being a fanboy. Right. You know, like, man, I, like I bought this thing because my cousins bought this thing and I like them. So like I bought the same one they bought and I'm, I'm all thinking I'm cool. And then like Street Fighter 2 comes out on Super Nintendo only and I'm like, oh I had to defend myself so much. Yeah. It was it was a terrible time. <laughs> anyway, the thing that really sticks <laughs> strikes me about the original Mac in hindsight is how clearly that team that made it got it. Whereby it is the thing that still guides Apple to this day, which is a complete um encapsulation if you're going to say, you know, that, that this metaphor is how the user is prevented with the system, with this computer, make it complete, right? There was no, you know, like in the early years of Windows where you booted, you really were booting into DOS. I remember I used to type Win to launch Windows, uh, that there was nothing like that. There was no command line, right? The first thing you saw when you booted the machine up in 1984, which was, and, and this blew people away, is instead of seeing like terminal text on the screen as the machine booted up, you saw a smiling Mac. You saw a picture of the computer itself smiling at you while it, you know, while you waited 
four minutes for it to boot up. (laughs) That they totally got it. And and it's amazing, given those ridiculous constraints, 128 kilobytes of RAM, uh, and the only storage being floppy disk, right? And and they were like 800K floppy disks. They weren't even uh, double density yet, or high density, whatever they were called. It's amazing how much of the stuff they did is still around on the Mac today, right? Apple menu top left, file, edit, view, uh, window. I think there was a window menu to switch between windows. But it's like the basic idea and the basic idea of how the menu bar works is, you know, they got it in 1984. I think, you know, part of the reason why they were able to do that, to have this kind of cohesion and, and attention to detail and like this nice polished 1.0, which, and I'm sure, you know, of course it wasn't perfect, but it was, it was, as you're, you know, you're right. It was like a very like cohesive, nice package together. And part of the reason that was possible is because at the time the problem set for what a personal computer had to do was very, very small. And, and and of course they added a lot to that list with, with this product, but uh, but it, it was it was still a very young simple industry. And I think you can look at a very clear parallel with the first iPhone, where they had 128 megabytes of memory right. and crammed everything possible into that that nobody thought was possible. And you know the first iPhone, it also added a bunch of things to what phones were expected to do, but it entered a very young market still, a market that. Apple was able to to help reshape and really to drive that reshaping, especially at first. And so, but the only reason they were able to do that is because the problem set of things smartphones had to do in 2007 was very small and very young and, and very simple relative to where it is today. So, like, we're never going to see another desktop or phone operating system uh, or, or major new hardware platform that launches with that amount of cohesion again these industries are too mature now like we're never going to see that again yeah i do that's a pretty good analogy i think you know the original mac to the original iphone and the 128 number is just a happy coincidence but right. in both cases the idea and and the the conceptual design of the user experience was years ahead of the hardware being capable of truly fulfilling it i think the mac was a lot further behind you know it took a lot longer for the hardware to truly catch up with the mac but even then i think by the late 80s it had kind of caught up but and with the iphone i would say i don't know probably with the iphone 4 when it went retina and it's i would like, say the 3gs was, was the first great iphone because the, the it's first a close call i mean and and the first two were really not bad they 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 were they couldn't do as much. By by the end of the 3G, you were starting to feel like, you know, I could really use a faster CPU here. Yeah. Um, the 3GS, uh, and the, the 3GS is what went to 256, right? Didn't that double the RAM? I think it did. I think it did. It, yeah. at, least made it, it at least had a much faster CPU. No, it definitely went to more RAM. Yeah, okay. So it had more RAM and a much faster CPU, and yeah. that was a massive improvement. Yeah. I mean, that I, I would say the 3GS was, like, was really the first truly, like, awesome, easy iPhone that didn't have like major performances. Because remember the, the four, the four wasn't as great as you remember, <laughs> especially in practice. Like remember how how slow the camera was to launch and and after shutters and especially like, it seemed like over time with software updates it kept getting worse. 
Um, where yeah, the the iPhone four camera was very very slow. Hmm. Uh, the home button had tons of failures and flaws. Um, antenna gate was was a minor problem for some people. The proximity sensor was a big problem for a lot of people. Uh, there like the iPhone four, which is funny because all the crap it got for the antenna gate thing, when the proximity sensor and the slow camera and the dying home buttons were actually way worse. I agree with all of that. Uh... I just I was thinking more in terms of that it, it it's always seemed to me that once the 4 came out that iOS was always sort of at heart it wanted a retina screen that it was it you know that they technically couldn't do it in 2007 but that it 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 really felt like finally the iPhone has the resolution it always should have had because there was so just because the device is so small there was always you know just like the 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 time rendered in the status bar it was. It's so tiny that on the pre-retina devices, it's really kind of hard to read. If you, you know, it's like you kind of have to. It, it helps that you j- usually have a good idea, basically what time it is. But you know, telling an eight across apart from a zero or something like that, it was super, super smudgy because it was so tiny. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I, I kind of think th- I was thinking more in terms though too of like just RAM and CPU speed. You know. Because, like, the one thing that really stood out to me in hindsight after, you know, a year or two later when we had faster iPhones was if I took my old original iPhone out on Wi-Fi, not Edge, but Wi-Fi, and loaded a web page, how long it took to render the page. Because it wasn't the networking. It was the actual computation of rendering, a you know, the front page of the New York Times. And it would take, like, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds. Still it, way better than browsing in the 90s. <laughs> Right, but it was sort of a throwback to that, though, where you're, you know, you, you, you know, you kind of forgot how just how complex it is to render a web page, and how we used to, you know, even when you were developing websites locally, where you weren't even waiting on the network at all, that it would uh, a relatively complex complex page took a lot of time to render. I mean, even that that uh, we didn't get past that even on desktops until maybe 2006 i mean that was like there was a while when i i mean on my first mac that the powerbook g4 that i, that I got in 04 um i remember having to load like the new egg website which had a very complex layout and tons of elements on the page that like certain sites that had very complex layouts would slow the browser to a crawl right or slash and, it, and they would yeah they would take they would even take like you know 10 15 seconds of like beach balling to render a page a very common page right and slash dot not because it was like graphically rich or intensive but just because you know uh it had so many comments and it was rendered hierarchically you know with threading that it 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 just choked as it as it went down the parse tree i mean if you think about and parsing isn't even the problem the problem is is the incredible amount of of dynamic layout and flexibility that you can achieve now with CSS. Uh, if you think about what, like, on a, at a computer science level, what has to happen to render a page <laughs> these days? And it is crazy how much computation goes into that because of how advanced our web languages are now, how advanced CSS and HTML are now, and JavaScript, which throws everything for a loop because then everything changes all the time. I mean, it's it's crazy how complicated modern websites are to render. And our hardware now does it so quickly. It Like, we are in such a great age of computing now where we pretty much are only ever waiting on the network. Right. I agree with that. 
And I feel like that's somewhere along the line. That's where I, iOS devices have sort of caught up. Maybe they're not quite there yet, but they're very close. Yeah, Art- and 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 once we once the whole industry has mostly completed the transition to SSDs in PCs, I think that will that will kind of close that door for a long time. Uh, that that kind of local performance bad days door of you know because SSDs are you know thousands of times faster than hard drives and and in the ways that matter like in random random access which is you know hard drives kept getting faster over the years but it was mostly in sequential transfers it wasn't really in random access nearly as much and that's what mattered a lot more and it doesn't matter you can't they don't go to sleep or stop spinning and then you have to wait for them to spin back up yeah (laughs) exactly exactly so yeah i i think the ssd transition is like the last the last like major Com- like modern computer performance bottleneck in sight right now, and yeah, I'm sure in in you know five or ten years, something that we think is commonplace today will seem completely archaic and slow. But I, I think the SSD transition is going to carry us for a long time. Uh, let me take a break here and do our first sponsor, and that's uh, our good friends at Lynda.com. L Y N D A. dot com. Lynda.com, they've been around forever, and they have a fantastic library of like self-teaching courses uh, for computer stuff, for design stuff, uh, and with coverage ranging from beginner level to advanced. Their videos include animations and diagrams. It's easy to find what you need, what you're interested in, what you're looking to learn. Uh, and when you do, they just have top quality content. Uh, they have over 2,000 high-quality video courses right now. And you think, well, if there's 2,000 of them, a bunch of them are probably junk. No, it's all like, it's the fact that they've been doing it for so long. They have this big library of content, and they have so many experts, but everything is made to really high standards. Uh, Examples that might interest listeners of this show. They have iOS developer courses. Unix for Mac OS 10 users. Like, so if you're out there and you've always wanted to learn more about the stuff you can do in terminal, they have great content for that. Uh, Objective C, similar to iOS developer, but more just how do you learn the language? Uh, and for the, uh, the flip side, for more design oriented stuff, uh, user experience design techniques for iOS, uh, great stuff like that. They have web development courses, um, everything Perl, uh, so for, John Syracuse, uh, ASP.NET, PHP, MySQL, JavaScript. I mean, everybody's using JavaScript these days. Uh, pure design stuff, Creative Cloud, right? Photoshop CC, InDesign CC, uh, Premiere Pro, After Effects, all of that. They've got courses and all of this stuff. What do you do? You go there, you pay one low price, $25 a month and you get access to the entire unlimited library. Uh, You can watch from your computer, your tablet, your mobile device, super high quality stuff, total opposite of like the homemade stuff you find on YouTube. Uh, Really easy to follow, really easy to learn. It's just great stuff. I have a great deal for you that they're offering to listeners of the show. Here's what you do. Go to lynda.com slash the talk show. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash the talk show. And you get a seven-day free trial. So you could go there, use that code. You can start watching the videos that they have for seven days, free of charge. See just how good they are. And uh, I will bet that you will sign up at the end of that period. 
Uh, so my thanks to lynda.com. Go check them out and uh, and learn some stuff. Yeah, I was actually there earlier this evening. I uh, they they sponsor our show as well, and so I w- I went to check it out, and they uh, I was watching this great thing on on Logic and editing the podcast and managing the d- Dynamics compressors and everything. And it was really really good. I was I was you know they had like the the diagrams and the animations and the graphs and everything. I was very impressed. Talk about like someone who's been they've been around a long time. I remember the Lynda.com booth at MacWorld New York. Macworld Expo, New York, back when Macworld was wow. a twice a year show, <laughs> and at the the Linda dot com booth was just swamped, just absolutely packed because it was like the late nineties, and everybody who was a graphic designer uh, felt you know realized they had to learn how to do web design to stay relevant in the industry, and it was just like gangbuster business of New York designers you know who went to Macworld. Uh, buying their stuff great stuff that's gonna be me in in a few more years when php finally stops being useful to me on on the web and i have to learn anything else i i uh i i've never done as much web development as you it's always been a sort of hobby for me but um i wrote my own link shortener uh, the DF for when you look, follow the at daring fireball Twitter account, the uh, DF four dot us URLs are all. It's my own little homemade system, and uh, Brent Simmons was asking me about it the other day, and it made me think about it. And it's one of those things where I forget when I wrote it exactly. It must have been like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It's a couple of years now. It's quite a few, um, and it mostly just runs. But when I wrote it. And there's a whole bunch of people, like everything I write, it's sort of a Rube Goldberg contraption between movable type and this other standalone thing. But at df4.us, it's just a little standalone web service. It doesn't actually create the short URLs. It just redirects them to the right URL at daringfireball.net. And at the time, I thought I wanted to learn Ruby. I was at least curious about Ruby. And so uh, I realized Rails was overkill for a, what should be a simple couple you know, maybe a hundred line thing total. And there's uh, another framework. It's a lot smaller and it, it just fit my model of how programming works better called Sinatra. Did you ever hear of Sinatra? That's for Ruby? Yeah. I have heard of it. I, I assumed it was Python. Wow, that's, that's yeah, you can tell how, how in touch I am with any of these things, <laughs> which is really sad. I really should know more. You know, and it's like a simple little thing where you, you, you know, you run your, you write your little Sinatra program and you write these handlers to take the URLs, you know, ma- pattern match the URLs. And then whenever it matches one of your patterns, it then it dispatches to where you tell it to go. Uh, and I had a good enough time doing it. And I thought, you know, it, it worked well enough. But then it, it's like I never did anything else in Sinatra or Ruby. And now it's like if I wanted to go back and do something with it, like I'd have to start all over from scratch. I have, I have zero memory of how it actually works. Well, I like, feel like right now we're in we're in this kind of terrible adolescent period between major web language eras where you know like like 3 or 4 years ago I would have said, yeah, use PHP, Python or Ruby. No problem. You know, and probably not in that order. I'd say probably use Python first, Ruby second, PHP third. And uh, I say this as a PHP programmer. <laughs> and and uh they were all very mature, very stable, very easy to use. Nothing, they, and most importantly, they were boring. 
you could you could set it up and not have to worry that like the bleeding edge beta version of the server that you set it up with is out of date in two weeks, and you know you set it up with the intention of not touching it for four years, um, and so that's kind of incompatible with that. But now, if you if you would learn one of those languages today, it's kind of like well, you know that's kind of like learning C plus plus today. It's like you can do it, and there are jobs out there for it, but you're kind of learning the past and it's you know that that might get out of date pretty soon and so now like all the new cool stuff like node and uh and some of the other cool stuff that's going on it you could tell this is the next generation progressing uh, you know as as we speak and you could tell like you know in in five years we're gonna be telling people in all likelihood yeah you you should learn node and because now it's really easy and stable and there's a billion jobs for it node makes me feel old though yeah. Well, and like, but be- but between now and then, it's like the, it's all these new things are still very, very young. Their tools are very young. They're running the stupid beta, everything that changes every two weeks. And there's new frameworks. There's a billion frameworks to choose from. You don't know which one's going to quote win. It's like a format war. Like you, you know, you don't know what you should be investing your time in. And 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 you could, you know, it's it's easy to say, especially especially for the younger programmers. Like if you're just getting out of college or something, it's easy to say, oh, we'll just learn all of them. Who cares? Um, but there is a lot of value in mastering something and in like learning the, the depths, the every detail of a language and a framework um, to really be very advanced in that thing. And so right now, if you wanted to start down that path of mastering something, there is no clear choice of what that should be. I think it's interesting, too, that web programming has changed a lot more in a shorter period of time than native desktop, and by desktop I mean PC or like mobile, but native app development. Because native apps in the old days used to be written in C, or on a Mac it was Pascal. But Pascal and C were just, you know, conceptually very, very similar, where if you could speak one, you'd at least understand the code of the other. Uh, And then when everything went object-oriented, C++ won out. And people wrote on the Mac, uh, what was it called? Power Plant uh, was the, the C++ framework that a lot of apps used. And it was funny because it didn't even come from Apple. It came from third-party MetroWorks that made the, the top compiler, which just tells you that's another sign of how bad a shape Apple was in in the 90s where they sort of lost control of the two tool chain. Um, by on merits, you know that they got beaten out by by a product, a third party product that was just better than what they had. Uh, and the Win sixteen and Win I don't know if Win sixteen was object oriented, but Win thirty two is a lot of C plus plus, right? Uh, no. no, I mean there's com. Yeah, it's it's weird. Windows the Windows APIs have always been. It was C and C plus plus. It was C. Yeah, the, the Windows APIs have always been kind of a, a a disaster because Microsoft would always come out like every three years. They would change what the new cool thing is that you're supposed to use, but then they themselves would never use it, and so it was, and that's which is why it kept changing because no one, it never, like none of them ever caught on, and it, it was always a disaster. And then you know, there's Java, which never got big on the Mac, but I don't know how much Windows software was written on, it. maybe commercially not much, but in the enterprise certainly a lot. Um, yeah, I think I think Java is is and always has been way bigger on servers than. Right. Anywhere on desktop and, and and mobile, especially. I mean, back in the early days of of terrible cell phones, uh, the the Java mobile stuff uh, and Brew 
were which was I think was based on Java. That was that had some foothold, but yeah, not strongly. It was mostly servers. You know, and and uh, next step slash Coco, you know, is not that it's unchanged since 1989, but it's still Objective C, and the language has added features over time. But whenever I ask, like at WWDC, when I meet like an old school Next developer, I've uh, I've asked them, you know, if you time traveled back to like your 1990 self who was writing on the then like brand new next platform and showed them code from an iPhone app would, would it be familiar? And it'd be, they always say, yeah, it would be, there'd be a couple of things that'd be like a head scratcher, but for the most part, it would be like, wow, this is really cool. The, you know, the future is great on this platform that it, it was clearly the same sort of philosophy and mindset to the APIs and stuff like that. Whereas web programming has changed so much. I mean, I remember writing, my first CGI program I wrote in C. I remember compiling CGIs in like 1995. And then Perl was really took off just because you didn't have to compile code. You could just save a text file and have it execute. But it went from CGI to PHP, which was wildly different. Maybe not linguistically, but conceptually it was, where you'd have actual executable code in the pages that, that you had. Uh and just, I, I think it's undergone, you know, total, unfam totally unfamiliar to what you knew before changes every three, four years. I think part of it, and certainly, you know, you're, you're right, but, you know, you can, like, if you're a PHP programmer and you look at Python or you look at Ruby, you can pretty much figure out what's going on. Like, it's not, it's not so radically different. It's just different function names, a few different syntax things a few different capabilities but not massively so um especially python yeah python famously i mean it's even like part of the design behind it is that it's supposed to look like pseudocode <laughs> exactly but if you you know like i think i think where where things are very clearly going um partly out of just advancement and partly out of hardware necessity where things are very clearly going is concurrency and all the modern languages we have for web programming so far, at least the, the big established ones, have not been great at dealing with concurrency. And it's way worse in PHP than the others. So, and I, I, I fully admit that. Right. Um, it, because it basi PHP basically says, what's concurrency? We don't support that. Um, but when you're designing a language for a hardware environment where processor speeds have pretty much stopped getting faster. You know, they, they're making incremental improvements, but it's no longer doubling in single-core performance, not even close, right? I mean, look at the Mac Pro. We've, we've, in, we've improved single-core performance something like 10% in three years. I mean, it's terrible. So, And these are like the best CPUs Intel has to offer. So, you know, the, the design of a language changes dramatically once concurrency at the hardware level is a big thing that has to be considered from the beginning and not just something you can add later or something something that only the advanced apps have to do. This is, some, this is not something that every app has to do. And Apple's done a very good job adding it to the desktop and mobile stuff with, with uh, GCD. It's been awesome. I mean, that GCD is a fantastic API. And there's, there's still some, some room to, to go on that uh, in regards to getting Cocoa apps, making, making them make better use of... Um, of multiple threads and multiple cores, but GCD goes a long way. It's really good. Whereas in the web world, we're still in the very early days of that transition, very, very early. And 
most of the languages still don't do it well. And so that's going to be the, the thing where when you make a major shift, like for, for me to learn something that's not PHP, that's what's going to do it. It's not some syntactical sugar that Ruby has that I don't care about. It's going to be great concurrency support. And you kind of have to design a language like that f- with that in mind from the beginning. Yeah, it's. I think it's fundamentally just that there's a, you're solving a different problem. That na- the prob- the native code has always had the uh, the uh, their eyes on the right prize, which is getting this thing to run as well as possible on this machine for this user. Right. Whereas the problem that web software is trying to solve is very different, and it's not just concurrency in the sense of that's the way Intel's. You know that if you want to take advantage, you've got to be able to go across cores. Uh, because the you know the clock like you said the clock speed isn't getting faster anymore. Um, but really, it's like that you want your app if it gets popular to be able to handle the most people with the least hardware. Exactly, and yeah, hardware is very cheap these days. But when you start talking about quote web scale, uh, things get expensive pretty quickly. You know, if if you have if you have an app that's on the App Store that gets you know a couple downloads a day, you're not going to notice on your servers any kind of major cost problems. But if you if you run something that gets popular, uh, then you're going to start having to spend thousands of dollars a month on servers, and that's going to add up quickly. And so this stuff really starts to matter. Which actually, you're probably thinking about recently, huh? With what? Well, with an iPhone app you might have that might need oh. some server stuff soon. Uh, yeah, and I don't even want to be secretive about it, but uh, uh, but I just don't want to speak on behalf of Brent. But uh, yeah, definitely, we've given that a lot of thought in terms of how, how that's going to work. Um, right, I mean, it changes everything, especially before... Like, I'm facing this with Overcast, like because I haven't launched this thing yet, and I have no clue what my costs are going to be. I have absolutely no clue. I have a server that, I'm, that I've been running for like six months in a test environment, but I have no idea once I release it how popular it's going to be and what that's going to actually use on the servers. But it's going to matter a lot. And, and you have, you at least have an installed base so far. So you know, with Vesper, you know like, all right, well, we have X many users. Probably, you know, X percent of them are going to enable sync in the first place. And then we can kind of expect this this volume. Well, here's a good example though of what we don't know. Just a simple question is what how many how many notes that Vesper users use uh, have photos attached? Because that's actually uh, going to depending on the answer to that, it would significantly increase our storage, right? Because yeah. the neck the notes that are mostly text, even if if let's just say for example we came out with a Mac version. Uh, where you would be e- more easily be able to type longer notes. Text is real and it compresses. So it's text is not going to be a storage problem. But photos could be, you know, because a photo is at least uh, a megabyte or so. Let's just throw out a ballpark number. Could be a huge difference depending, you know, if, if Vesper users store a lot of photos. We don't know, you know. We'll, we'll only find out once we have sync enabled. Oh yeah, and and you know, there's also there's you don't know where the bottlenecks are going to be yet, you know, like you know, and I have this problem too. Like I, I've written this entire sync method that I have no idea if it's a terrible idea or not. Like I think, I think it's reasonably decent, 
but I can point to like like the main sync action. Be like, you know, I have to load a lot of database records to make this happen, and maybe that's going to bite me. It's I don't true. Know. It is a very different development cycle because um, Brent's doing all the development, and it's it's funny because it's just like what we've been talking about, like writing the actual iPhone app. Brent was doing what he's been doing for the last. 12, 13 years or so, which is writing, you know, Cocoa code. And, you know, obviously the APIs on iOS 7 are a lot different than the APIs from macOS 10.2 or whatever was out when NetNewsWire shipped. Um, but it's like he feels like he's on it. On that degree, he's on a continuum and he's doing the same thing, but just staying on the leading edge and doing it over and over again. Whereas the, the backend code for the sync server is like nothing he's ever written before. Not that he hasn't written backend code before; it's just that it it changes so often. Oh yeah, and and again, like and not being able to predict what kind of usage and what kind of load and what kind of cost you're going to see from that uh, makes it very, very just stressful. And then when you launch, you know, it's possible. Like if you if you have to buy your own uh, hardware, it's even worse. Where you know you might launch with one server. And just and realize you need five, or you might launch with five and realize you need half of one, and that you, nobody likes your app. <laughs> and so it's very very hard. Like this stuff is you know the launching launching a modern app slash service, and and I think that line is is pretty safely blurred these days. Um, it's way more complicated than just making one app that has to run on one kind of phone, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a mystery too because the other thing too is when you're writing native code for a device, as you go, you get to a certain point. There's still like a scaffolding period where like there's nothing to even see. And then it got to a point where Brent could share it with me and Dave and we could try it. And then like on a daily basis, we could, you know, critique certain things. We we could ignore certain things that we knew where he just hadn't gotten to yet. But you can kind of see it coming together and you know, you know, a, a, as it progresses, you see, well, this is definitely going to work. This is going to work. That's not going to work. Look, this idea we had to do this where you swipe left, right, it doesn't, it, it just doesn't, it's confusing. And then you back it out. Whereas when you're wondering about scale, you don't, you don't know until you unleash the hounds. Right. And by that time, it's like we have to have this fixed 10 minutes ago. Right. Like there's no time. Like once you launch, if you're having a scaling problem, especially if your problem is you have to scale up, um, if that's your problem, then you don't have a lot of time to like, oh, let's rewrite this entire sync engine to work this completely different way, or let's swap out this entire backend component um, because it turns out you know we need to use S3 or we need to get off S3 or something like that. Uh, you know, there's these big decisions uh, are much harder to do after you've launched, but you don't know that you have to do them until after you've launched. So it's you're just kind of screwed either way. You just kind of have to deal with this launch might be bumpy. Which is what I'm facing whenever I actually ship Overcast. How close do you think you're getting? I'm almost ready for a beta. Uh, I'm I I was going through this week. <laughs> Here goes every talk show listener emailing right now. To Please don't. <laughs> I yeah I've I've oh my god I've had so many and it's very it's very flattering I've had a million requests. Problem is I I only have a hundred UDID slots. Right, and you probably and, have eight uh, of them for your own devices. So you yeah got something like, like that and. And so yeah, like I, I'm probably not gonna make the beta, and and I have you know I'd like if I want to do a beta, 
before it's actually shipped and in the store. Uh, I have, you know, if, if I want to do that uh, for press people, I have to leave room for them. Right. So there goes like you know another ten slots, and we so ran I'm out the- of them on on Q Branch. We we I forget what we're gonna do, but we we, yeah. we it's almost like I, like what I said like when I had a LC with a forty megabyte hard drive and I spent half my time trying to clear <laughs> things up, like us trying to clear up device IDs, like for you the, can't delete these files or you delete them and then they actually get deleted a year later. Right. Well, exactly. Exactly. It's like you can only empty your trash once a year. Right. <laughs> think carefully. Do you really want right. to do it now? I don't think a lot of people realize that, but it is crazy. You, every, I think a lot of people know there's a hundred device limit to developer beta, uh, you, you know, device IDs. I don't think a lot of people realize though that that only gets reset once a year. Yeah, and and the, it's the rules have kind of. It, it's very unclear. At least it used to be. It's very unclear as to when that would happen. So you're like, well, I'll, I'll get. I'll get another, you know, 60 devices back sometime, you know, around these, this few-month period that I forget exactly what date it'll happen on. There's nowhere to see that, and yeah, it's probably better now, but but it's still, you know, if you if you delete a device, it doesn't make room for somebody else. It, it might in the future, but yeah. it, at that moment, it doesn't. You just lose that device. It's, it's a remarkable, I mean, it's a real problem, and it's like something that, like, iOS developers, when commiserating amongst themselves never shut up about because you never it's never ending um because ipads count count across the limit if you have a oh, universal yeah. app and most people who beta test at least at least the ones we have are people who are just like me and you who get a new iphone every year right so so, you, so every time there's a new iphone or ipad launch we get this massive pile of emails from test flight saying all these people deleted a device all these people added a device and you better update your records and burn all those slots some more right and so yeah, if you have I mean, a universal- it would be so much easier like Forever, developers have been suggesting why don't why doesn't Apple just tie it to Apple IDs? Say a hundred Apple IDs. Oh my god! Instead of a hundred so device great. IDs, that would be amazing. That alone would 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 get me to shut up about it because it would solve the problem. Totally. Because effectively, um, you get it's really more like a limit of forty people. If they're if most of them are going to get a new iPhone every year, and then if you're going to do universal with iPhone and iPad, you're talking about sort of like twenty five thirty at the tops. If they're going to go through both an iPad and an iPhone, and maybe a new iPhone, let alone you know me, I go through. I have two new iPads, you know, or one new iPad a year and a new iPhone. Right, like like I'm I'm and I'm even even for the testers, like I'm beta testing an app now for iPad, and my primary iPad is a mini. So I was like, all right, I gave him that UDID. And now that I got the app, I mean, you know, I actually would like more screen space for this app. I wish I could test it on my wife's Air, but I can't because I didn't give them that UDID. And I'm not going to go back to them and say, please burn another one. So, you know, but like, I, I like none of this is the best testing it could be. None of this is set up for good quality, easy interaction at all. It's, it's all incredibly uh, rudimentary and hostile. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's a lot of ways that iOS development has gotten better over the years in terms of managing some of that stuff, um, like code signing and stuff. But the limit, the device limit is, hasn't changed at all. And it's, it's more of a problem now than it was when it happened because, uh, because of the iPad. And I think it's totally reasonable that you'd, you know, if, if a tester has both an iPad Air and an iPad Mini, you'd want them using both to make sure everything, right. you know, is sized comfortably for both. 
Right, or you know, if it's a really good tester, make them run it on an iPad three. Right. <laughs> you know, like be able to run it on like on the the weird edge case devices that that might show different problems. Let me run it on a non Retina device and a Retina device. Like there, you know, if you if you're gonna have somebody actively testing beyond just like oh let me try out the app because I want to be cool and get it get it in a, you know ahead of time, um, you want them to test it on many different devices. Yeah. Uh, let me take a break here and thank our second second. Sponsor. What a great service this is. Backblaze. Love these guys. Unlimited, unthrottled backup for your Mac. $5 a month. They have an iOS app that lets you access and share any of your files that have been backed up from your Mac. You can restore one file at a time. If there's one thing that's gone bad, corrupted, or you've erased it, or you've edited such and... uh, um, Time Machine, you know, doesn't get it back. You can um, restore one file at a time, or uh, you could restore everything. You can use the website to access your files. Backblaze was founded, and this is I super key to the thing. It was founded by ex-Apple engineers. It's not some kind of, like, Windows service, and then there's also a Mac client, and it all feels kind of weird and gross. It looks and feels like something that should have, you know, arguably maybe even should come from Apple. It's so good. And it feels totally right. Uh, and it runs totally native on Mac, including Maverick support. Uh, there's no add-ons. There's no gimmicks. There's no additional charges. It's not like a thing where you go there and there's something for $5 a month. But to make it work the way you want it to, you really ought to pay, you know, $25 a month or something like that. No, you pay $5 per month. You get unlimited, unthrottled backup. Uh, we were just talking earlier about how people you know, couldn't back up in the old days, but there's so many people who don't back up now. If you're not using something that backs up your whole drive, you're nut, your whole Mac, you're nuts because it, eventually your drive's going to go bad. Uh, really, $5 a month, you will sleep so much better knowing that you've got Backblaze backing up all your data. It'll be, it's like the best $5 a month you can spend. What do you do to find out more? How do you know? How do they know you're coming from the show? Here's the trackable link they have: www.backblaze.com/slash/daringfireball. Now it's not the talk show; it's slash daring fireball. I think because it's a uh, it's a it's a link that they're tying into a uh, a deck ad or something like that, or uh, daring fireball sponsorship. Uh, use that URL and. Uh, They'll know you're coming from the show. And if you haven't tried it yet, you're nuts if you haven't. I mean, I, I can recommend this service wholeheartedly. I wish I could buy it for all of you because it, it, it makes the world a better place when a Mac is being backed up to Backblaze. You're going to get so much email. Why? I don't get email. Well, I don't read it. Maybe <laughs> I do get a lot of email. What am I going to get email about? Well, people are going to want to take you up on that. Oh, they know I'm not serious about buying it for them. Five dollars a month, buy it yourself. It's so cheap. It's ridiculous. I would I I mean that sincerely, not just because they're sponsoring the show. I, I five dollars a month for backblaze is is easily the best. I, I can't imagine how you get more for your money for five dollars. I can't imagine. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, and I, I've used it for years. We have it on my computer. We have it on my wife's computer. I have many. I think I have three terabytes of total data in there between our computers. It's it's a lot of terabytes, and uh, you know, you, you have Time Machine locally. You know, definitely do that for that way. You you have like you know fast whole drive recovery. Time Machine locally. 
and then you know the, the the question is like all right well if time machine's my only backup then what happens if either there's some bug and that gets corrupted or I'm sure everyone who's ever used Time Machine has had a problem where sometimes Time Machine kind of flakes out and decides that it can't back up to your disk anymore because it keeps saying it doesn't have enough space even though it does. And the solution often is format your Time Machine drive and start over. But then you create this window during which you don't have a backup. Right. And like, what if your hard drive dies during that window? Then you're screwed, right? Right, and Murphy's Law will tell you that your, <laughs> your machine is a lot more likely to die in that window. It Especially, really you know, your hard drive is like, well, yeah, you're, all of a sudden, your, your hard drive that's been gently used every day, you're now asking it to read its entire content straight through. So that's going to have a lot of activity, and maybe that will accelerate its well, death. And there's the whole offsite issue, right? Now you've got exactly. a backup that is not in your house, and that means if your house gets robbed, if there's a fire... Power um, surge. Right. Uh, years ago, we, uh, at a previous apartment, we had a bedroom where there was like a water leak above the ceiling and a big part of the ceiling, you know, fell through and water came dripping down and there weren't any computers underneath. But I, first thing I thought when I saw it, when, you know, when we realized what happened is it, it was a perfectly logical place to put a desk and a computer in that bedroom. If we just didn't have the – we had the computers in a different room. But if we had put computers in that room, it would have been right over where the computer went. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you have a combination of a local drive for fast, easy recovery like Time Machine and then a cloud backup service, you, that, that's a fantastic combination that will cover pretty much any condition. And, and I've tried multiple cloud backup services, and Backblaze is the one that I keep. Uh, it's, it's, off-site is key because then that's, that's what makes you sleep better. That's what makes me sleep better. Because then anything could happen, you know. Forget your keys. You're locked out of your house. Well, with Backblaze, you could just move to a new house. Yeah, just burn down the old one. Right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> what else is going on? What else is in the news? Well, there's all this Apple earnings crap, but I don't care, do you? Yeah, it's really starting to bore me. It's, I feel it's, like because yeah. they've gotten bigger... It's it, the earnings stuff is boring and it's worth. I took a look and just to make sure there weren't any surprises and there weren't. So, you know, I'm pretty much done with it. Yeah, I, I think the earnings, the earnings were briefly newsworthy during that like two or three year period where they were growing insanely. Right. Like a couple that, of years ago. <laughs> yeah, it really was because it was just phenomenal, you know, 20 something, 30 something, right. 40 something percent growth. Uh, I think there were some years in there where there was like 50% year-over-year iPhone Something unit, like share, unit share cell growth. But like even then, even during those years where the earnings numbers themselves were, were very exciting, even then the resulting news of that happening was like, you know, B-grade news. Like it really wasn't that interesting. <laughs> like only the top Apple watchers really gave a crap about that or the top finance people really gave a crap about that even during the exciting finance times. Now we're entering a period where Apple's finances are much less interesting because they're just, you aren't having those massive growth spikes anymore. Now it's more incremental and uh, and so it's even less exciting to people just following the news. Yeah, I think so too. I guess if there's a little bit of news that came out, it's that uh Apple, at least to some degree, confirmed that the 5C was a little bit of a disappointment and that the 5S was a little bit more popular than they expected, that they their their predicted mix was a little bit more 
balanced and that the actual demand was a lot heavier in favor of the 5S. Right. Even uh, that, it's like the news there is this phone that none of you care about, turns out no one else really cares that much about it either. Well, but the thing is, and I don't think it's worth writing off the 5C at all. And I think I saw some people on Twitter saying it's clearly a flop, et cetera, et cetera. To me, it's oh, No, all, it's not a flop. It's, it's all, boring. It's all, yeah, it is It is boring. And it's all written from the perspective that it's it's more of a change than it really is from previous years where they sold the last year's top-of-the-line iPhone at $100 less. Because that's what it is. It's the iPhone 5, $100 less. Oh, but it also has a different – has a plastic case instead of a metal case. But, it, you know, it's every, – every other way, it's exactly an iPhone 5, which is exactly what Apple has done uh, ever since the 3GS. When did they first start moving them down? I, think when I believe it was 3GS. Right. The I believe 3GS when the 4 was... came out, 3GS became... Oh, no, the, when the, I think when the 3GS came out, they kept the 3G. Oh, did they keep the 3G? I think. Well, have to, no, it doesn't really matter. It was one of them. It was either the 3G or the 3GS. But ever since, they've done that. And I think the mix has always been, you know, in the quarter the new iPhone comes out, heavily in favor of the new one, because all of the enthusiasts who want a new iPhone when it's new get it then. Because if you're going to get a new iPhone, it doesn't make any sense to buy it other than in the – if you really care about the, the device, it doesn't make any sense to buy it except when it first comes out. Because then, you know, if you're like us and you're going to get a new one every year, why why wait? Uh, and then the next three quarters after that, the balance comes down, you know, and, and that's measured by active the, – the, the average selling price. The average selling price is always way higher in the quarter when the new one comes out. And then it goes down the next three until the next new one comes out. So the next three quarters are when the 5C is supposed to sell better because that's when the people buying iPhones are more, you know, just people, regular people who are like, I guess I'll buy an iPhone. I think the most interesting part of uh, – the, the most interesting insight I think we can get from the 5C – probably not selling any better than the previous quote old iPhones is that people weren't really fooled like the 5C seemed like an attempt by Apple to make the old iPhone cooler than just it being the old iPhone and it, they tried to you know put the old iPhone in a new suit and call it another new model when in reality, the public was not fooled. The public knew that this is not really the new one. The public knew what the new one was. Way, you know, beyond nerds. This went, this, you know, this went into regular people. Regular people knew that the new iPhone had the fingerprint sensor and was this cool new still metal one. And this plastic one was not the new iPhone. And so they weren't fooled. Like it wasn't, it continued selling as a lower end model. But very few people, I think, bought one as, you know, thinking they're getting the new one. Yeah, and and clearly some people were. I remember somebody telling me that they were in, like, a coffee shop and they heard a guy in front of them, you know, they're waiting in line. And the guy in front of them was, like, telling a, the girl he was standing next to, he had a 5C and he was like, yeah, don't be a dummy. It's the exact same thing and $100 cheaper, you know. And he was acting like he was, like, a tech expert, <laughs> uh, you know, and he's actually wrong. It is a hundred dollars cheaper, but it's not the exact same thing, right? Uh, and and you know, I I think we nerds tend to assume that regular buyers are less savvy than they really are, 
And, you know, there's there are people like that, certainly. But I think the numbers speak for themselves that, at least in, at least in the relatively high-end market that all iPhones sit in, relative to all phones globally, uh, you know, this is still a, a fairly high-end segment. At least within that high-end segment, overall people were not fooled in a major way. Overall people still know what the new iPhone is, and they still want the new one. If they if they ever wanted the new one in the past, they they still want what's really the new one this time. And you know, and if they were people who bought the five C, or and people who buy the five C, probably would have also bought the five if they kept that around. You know, as the old phone this year. Yeah. Uh, what else can you glean? I mean, to me, the most it, the numbers don't really matter. The 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 dollars don't matter that much. I mean, you know, revenue is up a little profits were flat because margins are down a little bit um but still you know compared to all of its competitors or would-be competitors way higher you know margins do you Uh, think now that samsung had kind of a weak quarter that all the analysts are going to start telling them they have to make small phones no i don't think so uh we should save that i did save that for the next (laughs) show the big screen phone thing uh, because I think that's a long topic. But I don't think the analysts are going to say that to Samsung. I think that everybody has it in their heads that Apple needs to make a big phone, um, but yet never occur Because it, it never has occurred to them. They've never said it. I mean, now that, you know, Samsung had a bum quarter, but all the other Android makers who've been losing money, nobody's ever said, well, why don't they do, you know, make a phone like the iPhone? Since the iPhone... Uh, is the most profitable and best single best-selling smartphone on the market. Do you Nobody think Samsung can innovate anymore? <laughs> I think innovation is dead. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, how bad was their quarter? I didn't see the details of it. It was. I mean, I don't. I didn't, like I didn't look too far into it. I think it was you know like a single-digit percentage decline or something like that. It wasn't. It wasn't like a major problem, but it was like it was like their first down quarter in years. Right. Uh, you know and. I don't know. It's just it's just funny. I mean, the, I I always I don't take the news about Samsung and Apple too seriously because it's to me it's just humorous. It, it watching everybody fall all over themselves trying to make terrible, you know, fake analyst predictions and watching everyone try to be an analyst uh and watching even half of the real analysts make terrible predictions uh and trying to tell company. I mean, you, this is like this is like half your business, right? It's like pointing out these idiots, <laughs> like telling, you know, seeing all these people who think they know what these big tech companies should do um, because they're reading the same news as everybody else. I think um, the, the basic problem, yeah. though, is that Samsung and Apple have both run into with with phones is that not that we've run out of that they've run out of new customers, but they're getting pretty close to running out where there's not this huge untapped market of people who a might be interested in a five six seven hundred dollar smartphone and b actually have five six seven hundred dollars to spend on a smartphone right like, it's like that, peak oil it's right. like you know like like we've we're we're slowing down the rate at which these companies can find new customers that are profitable and and you know can, and they can reach with good economics and good products you know like there's always going to be this this massive amount of people in the world who are very willing to buy these phones if they can pay a lot less for them because they can't pay more and that's always going to exist but 
you know, you're not going to see these massive profit rises from companies trying to address markets that have very, very thin margins and, and you know, big volumes, no profit. That's always going to be a challenge. And so I think we've reached like, you know, peak rich smartphone customers, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. And not that, again, it's like you said with peak oil, where oil production still goes up, but it's like, it's like it's it's like hard enough to reach it that it's it the go go days are over. Exactly. There's, there's no way to get to double digit, especially high double digit growth anymore because it's just there's just not enough people left. Too many of them already have the phones and are in two year up, upgrade cycles. Oh, the other yeah. thing I saw mentioned was uh, that U.S. iPhone sales were actually down year over year. It was and it was made up the the overall six or seven percent growth was made up outside the US and that Tim Cook uh, attributed it to carrier changes, which is more or less basically that all the major US carriers now make you wait the full 24 months of your contract before they'll up offer you upgrade pricing. Um, yeah, that and, has to hurt. Yeah, but like I think the Cook's explanation though is that now, but now that they're all there, it'll it'll work out going forward because everybody's on the same cycle. And they'll be upgrading every two years. Although I'm not sure that that actually makes sense because if I think the argument against that was that people used to, a lot of people, more people were upgrading quicker than 24 months, whether it was every 12 months when the phones came out or like 18 months or something like that. Right. I think, at least in the US for a while, the average was 18 months. Because a lot of people would upgrade early because you'd, you'd get either a half or a full subsidy even at 18 months. They would just kind of not tell you. Like they wouldn't start advertising to you yet because they wanted you to keep going, but you could get it earlier. Uh, a lot of people also lose or break or drop their phones in the toilet, and so they have to get new ones earlier. And so you know, a lot of times the policies would allow a, a bit of a discount before then, and yeah, now all the carriers have tightened those down. So the average used to be 18 months, and now I'm, I'm going to guess that's going to go up by a few. Yeah, I think definitely. Uh, By the way, that's totally with no citations or evidence. That could be completely wrong. It could have been 13 <laughs> months. It could have been just like in Ohio or something. I have no idea. <laughs> I keep my notes in my head as well. Yeah. Uh, I think the average selling price for an iPhone this past quarter was $637, and the average selling price for an iPad was somewhere around $400, um, which is interesting in the context of uh, the show I did last week with Moltz when we were talking about the iPad camera and how it's uh, everybody's, you know, not everybody, but so many people are using their iPads as, as a major camera or their, their favorite camera. You know, that's the That's what they take out on vacation to take, you know, snapshots. Uh, and that I wish, I hope that Apple can somehow manage to get the top of the line camera from the iPhone into the iPad either this year or next year, but maybe they can't. Because uh, only the iPhone, which sells at a significantly higher price, right? If it's four hundred to six hundred thirty-seven, um, that's like one point over one point five times the average price. So there's a lot more room in the average price of an iPhone, especially the high-end models, which you know are above the average selling price, the five S. There's a lot more room to put a bleeding edge technology camera in there than on the iPad. Oh yeah, and you know the difference in these sensors. You know, it might be like 
either $25 or $45 for the camera thing. But, you know, like the, and the, you would think, oh, they should just put that in the iPad because they have all that room. But, you know, all these component differences add up pretty quickly and they start affecting that margin number. And you'll see, you know, any, I mean, didn't, didn't the stock take a hit from today's results? I mean, like any. Yeah, 8%. But yeah, I don't, who knows? By the time, but, but now that we're recording, who knows? It could be, you know, right, could right, be right. more, could be less. But you know, the there's a lot of pressure from the finance side of things to keep that percentage margin, that that gross margin percentage of what is it like thirty seven percent or something like that? It's, I don't even know. I'm not, I'm not good with this finance stuff. But there's a lot of pressure to keep that where it is or get it bigger. And this quarter it went down slightly, and I bet that's going to hurt a little bit. Yeah, and. You know, Apple has to. Yeah, Apple's kind of squeezing all sides with this kind of stuff. They, their shareholders and the board probably want them to keep that number pretty healthy, but the whole rest of the market is saying we want things cheaper, we want things better. There's all this competition now that's making things cheaper and better in a lot of cases, and so they're they're really kind of squeezing both sides there, and it, it's it, they're in a tough position with that. Like, I think they're I think we're always going to see Apple struggling to hit that balance optimally. And we're not we're not always going to like what they have to do to hit it, or the finance people aren't going to like what they have to do to hit it, right? And I think that there was, uh, you know, what gives me hope is the way that the iPad Mini went Retina this year rather than next yeah. year, which is what I had expected a year ago, uh, and that it, you know it's totally caught up. It's on the A7. It's you know what it's like five percent underclocked compared to the Air, but you know for all intents and purposes. Um, they're the exact same iPad, just with two different size screens, same oh, camera, yeah. same display, and that to me is really impressive. And that's the sort of same uh, efficiency that that if I'm right or if my wish is correct, that that uh, that they could get like maybe next year get the iPads to use the same camera as the iPhone six or whatever they're going to call it. It would be the same type of move. It would be a pleasant surprise, but I don't think it's something that people should hold their breath for. Yeah, we'll see. There's there's also the issue of thickness, um, where you have, you have physical room concerns, also with especially with the mini. Uh, actually, no, I think isn't the Air thinner than the mini? I don't know. They're either so way, close, they're probably very close. Um, so yeah, there's there's also depth concerns um, because you know one of the ways to make one of the easiest ways to make cameras bigger is to make a larger sensor, which needs larger optics, which you know means phys- the lens has kind to be, of starts getting has to be further away. Exactly. I mean, or you know, there's there's some tricks you can pull to reduce that distance, but not many, and not many that won't hurt the image quality noticeably. And so there's 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 always going to be this battle between device thickness and camera quality, yeah. which I'll save some of that discussion for. I wonder if well. I wonder if you went out and and just went to like a carrier. This is a question I, I never really thought about this before. And you just went to like a Verizon store and looked at every Android and and Windows phone smartphone that they're selling. How many of them have like a bump for the camera? <laughs> yeah, I, that's a lot. I bet I, it's got to be most has to be. Because all the ones I've seen always have a bump of some kind, whether it's just for the camera lens and it's sort of like a almost like a nipple, or it's like half the back of it is a different thickness than the other half. Yeah, it's uh, that's been as far as I mean, we're the probably the two worst people in the world to talk about this. But as far as I know, that's been like I a saw pretty an standard and- thing I- on Android f- for years now. Pretty sure I saw an Android phone once. 
<laughs> I've seen one in a, last time I went to an AT&T store two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do the third sponsor. Yeah. Uh, another repeat sponsor. Another fantastic service. What a great idea. It's our friends at Fracture. Fracture prints your photos in vivid color directly on glass. You get it in the mail then, and it's a picture, a frame, and a mount all in one. Your box contains everything you need to get your photo on your wall or on your desk propped up. Uh, it's a small team. They hand-assemble every print right here in the USA, and they have a 30-day happiness guarantee and a lifetime warranty. Um, they have sizes starting at 5x5 five five small, which is 12 bucks, all the way up to 22x29. Uh, Those are inches. This is the USA, folks. Uh, extra large. <laughs> you got a cowboy hat when you're saying that? <laughs> you know what? Have I ever given you my rant on Fahrenheit versus Celsius? <laughs> I think I did it on a talk show once, but I'll, I'll get into that. Extra large, and that's 125 bucks, but that's huge. Uh, and they have a special promotion for talk show listeners. Use this coupon code, the talk show, all one word, no spaces. The talk show gets you 10% off your order. Um, I have a bunch of these now from when they sponsored the show before. Yeah, I got six of them in my office right now. Um, uh, my wife, Paul, uh, uh, Paul and Amy, my wife, they had this, they had the, were doing their talk show, uh, uh, their podcast before they had fracture as a sponsor and they did a thing where they were sending each other gimmick fractures. They were sending each other like uh, joke ones back and forth for each episode of the, that fracture sponsored them. So we have fractures all over the house. They all look great. Uh, and it was a big hit, uh, for our family at Christmas cause it was, uh, it's a go-to gift. You don't know what to get someone. Get them a, get them a present of someone in the family in a fracture. It looks amazing. Uh, and I just can't say enough how different the it looks. It's, it's like uh, it's the weirdest effect that they say they print the photos directly on glass. Didn't make any sense to me until I got one and looked at it. It's exactly what it looks like. Uh, looks way cooler and somehow different than a print under glass. Really cool thing. Go to their website. Uh, their website is FractureMe.com. Just spell out the word, F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E-Me.com. It doesn't hurt. doesn't hurt. Uh, check them out. Use that coupon code, The Talk Show. And trust me, it's a really it, – it's better than I expected it to be, and I expected it to be pretty good. But it's really, really cool way to print photos. Yeah, I said on my show too because they sponsored my show too um, – one use I came up with for them uh, is they're they're small size. It's it's square. It's five inches by five inches, or there's a rectangle version that I think is four by six or something like that. And uh, their small size is great for app icons. And so I have on my wall of my office this row of three app icons of the apps I've worked on. I have Instapaper, the magazine, and Overcast all in a row hanging up on my wall, kind of as like a trophy slash motivation row for me. Because uh, you know the, the square size, you know, and the, the, it's twelve bucks for each of these things. It's fantastic, and that's before the discount. Uh, so that's yeah. a great idea. It, it works. It works so well. You should. I mean, you know, it's it's square. Like they don't they don't cut the corners for right. you. Although they do have a custom option, which I didn't look into. But um, but you know, these things look great, and uh, it, well, it's, it's a, good, a great way to uh, bring your bring your work into the physical world for once. If they did cut the corners, they would add a recut the. The, they had to retool yeah. the machine when iOS <laughs> seven came out because the corners changed. Yep. So don't don't cut the corners. Just that's such a, that's such an Apple thing to do to change that shape. Yeah. 
Like just just to be a dick to everyone. It's fantastic. Let me give you my rant on Celsius versus Fahrenheit. <laughs> sure. Fahrenheit. I, I won't argue in favor of imperial measures, whatever you want to call them, in general. I, the, the, you know, in general, the, the metric system is superior because of the logical, you know, everything's scale of 100. Uh, but Fahrenheit, I will argue for. And Fahrenheit is a scale of 0 to 100. Zero, and it's all based on temperature, like like weather temperature. Zero degrees Fahrenheit is freezing your fucking ass off. It's like the most you could a human being can, a typical human can bear outside. And a hundred is unbearably hot. Zero to a hundred, super ass cold, super ass hot. Celsius, this scale of zero is freezing point of water, and a hundred is boiling. Who gives a shit? Who gives a shit about what <laughs> temperatures water boils at? When you're talking about the weather, Fahrenheit makes so much more sense than Celsius. Yeah, I think it I, might I have actually been, agree. And, might have and been back when Dan like... was doing the show. When I was doing the show with Dan, I think Dan and I got in a rant about this. And boy, <laughs> you, you always say, boy, you're going to get email. I'll tell you what, we got email. Oh, we yeah. got email because everybody outside the U.S. was irate. I'm telling you, you're wrong. Celsius is is terrible. Well, and... They're both not based on absolute zero. And so I feel like, you know, for, for expressing the temperature of the weather, of the air, I agree. I, I think Fahrenheit makes more sense. And, you know, it's not, it's not that zero, it's, it's not that you're going to die below zero or that you're going to die above 100 Fahrenheit. Um, you just, you know, you will see these extremes in your life if you live somewhere normal. Uh, but, you know, you, you don't really want to be there. <laughs> like, you want to be inside. <laughs> <laughs> with with uh, climate control at that point, um, whereas Celsius, yeah, it's like zero is kind of cold, and a hundred is you're dead, right? And, and you died a long time ago, actually, right? And so it, so like negative three Celsius, negative three Celsius right. is is a few degrees below water freezing. So it's you know it must be I don't know I I've, I'm not going to look this up, but it you know must be like what we would call something in the high twenties Fahrenheit. Yeah, probably. Uh, or somewhere in the twenties, so that's cold, but it's not crazy cold. That's not right, like I still walk my dog in that. Oh yeah, you're like you're not going to get hurt outside in that. Right. When it's negative three Fahrenheit, you're going to get hurt. You 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 might get frostbite. Oh you're yeah, if it's in. below ten, I don't really go outside. Yeah, when unless it's below I really zero, holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> when it's above a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. You gotta, you know, like call your grandfather and make sure that he's still alive because yeah, he might make sure he's air conditioning. Yeah, works. make sure he turn the air. Yeah. I, well, and I feel like you know because neither of them are based on absolute zero, they both have this kind of arbitrary zero point uh, and this arbitrary scale going forward. Um, you know, you can look at the rest of the metric units and you can say, well, it's a lot easier when working with computers and science. Uh, it's a lot easier to work with the metric stuff because of their nice evenly divisible increments and stuff like that. But temperature, it seems like the only true temperature measurement that's easy to work with would be Kelvin. And if you're gonna like, if you're arguing for the sake of well, Celsius is better for science or something, not really. I, Kelvin would be the the one that would make more sense there. You know, for science and computation, it seems like you'd want the one where zero actually is zero in a meaningful way, uh, and you know, not based on this weird arbitrary midsection of of actual temperatures. Exactly. So I would say Celsius is is equally stupid as Fahrenheit. I don't I wouldn't say either of them are necessarily overall better. 
I would say Celsius is equally stupid. No, Fahrenheit is brilliant. Fahrenheit is a perfect scale for human temp- for weather temperatures, air temperatures, call it. Yeah, ac- yeah. Actually, I can see. Yeah, for for like the temperature of the weather, air. Yeah, I agree. Fahrenheit makes more sense there. I'm telling you, it's it's 20 degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit. What is that? Let's see. 20 degrees Celsius. I think it's like 50 or something, right? 60? Isn't that like isn't that one of the room temperature ranges? Yeah. It's 68. And then 29 degrees Fahrenheit, or 29 degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit is 84. So that's totally different. It's like in terms yeah. of weather, you're talking two totally different days. Whereas in Fahrenheit, you could say, what's it like today? Well, it's in the 70s. Then you know what I mean. It means it's beautiful. And it doesn't matter if it's 72 or if it's 78. It's a beautiful day. If I yeah, say, like, you know, oh, it's between 22 and 27. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Although this is, of course, why when you and I travel internationally, we probably set the thermostats to some ridiculous temperature. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know if it's because it's called the Intercontinental or if it was just that the guest before me happened to do it and the, the, the whoever <laughs> made up the room. I remember one time for WWDC, I stayed at the Intercontinental in San Francisco and I came in the room and it, I checked the thermostat and it was, I don't know, 20-something. And I thought, you know, debonair world traveler that I am, well, that's fine. And, you know, stashed my bag and went out and you know had some dinner and uh, had a couple drinks got back to the room ready to sleep ready to get a good night's rest for the the WWDC keynote the next morning and woke up with like the night sweats and i was like oh did i eat something bad did i did i drink too much oh it's i didn't want to do that before the keynote and it's like i i i got to go get some water and then i go and i like check the thermostat and I, I find the button and then I'm blind in the night because I don't have my contacts in. I find my glasses, check the thermostat and I like find the button that converts Celsius to Fahrenheit and it's it's the dipshit who had the room before me had it set to like 77 degrees Fahrenheit. See, normally I would say, oh man, that sucks. I feel so bad for you. However, when you did wake up from that horrible sleep at 9.30 in the morning, you probably walked right past me in the keynote line where I had been since six in the morning. So I don't feel bad for you at all. Yeah, I think I remember seeing you in the, in the line. <laughs> <once or twice. laughs> all right, should we call that? We could call that a show, right? Let's do it. Let's call it a show and keep going. That is a show. Jesus, we went an hour and 40 minutes on just one show. All right, I'm hitting stop.